if I had the pleasure of bringing out Christ. This is just how I would do it. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to introduce a man who needs no introduction. His credits are too long to list. He has done the impossible time after time. He hailed out of a manger in Bethlehem, Jerusalem, by way of heaven. His mother is still headlining in the Catholic Church today. His daddy is the author of a book that has been on the bestseller list since the beginning of time. He holds the record for the world's greatest fish fry. He fed 5,000 hungry souls with two fish, five loaves of bread. He can walk on water, turn water into wine. No special effects, no camera tricks. He has a headshot on every church fan across the country. Even before the kings of comedy, he was hailed the king of all kings, ruler of the universe, alpha and omega, beginning and the end, the bright and the morning star. Some say he's the Rose of Sharon, and some say he's the Prince of Peace. Get up on your feet. Put your hands together and show your love for the second coming of the one and only. That video portrays the bigness, the greatness, the vastness, the brilliance, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. When our kids were growing up, our daughter, uh, Tammy, when she was just a little um, I, even a, I don't even know if she was a toddler yet, but just even an older baby, we would say, how big is Tammy? And you remember this, and she would go, so big, right? Well, how big is the grace of God? How big is the love of God? We're beginning our study in the book of Colossians today. And in that book, you will experience, not just know, but experience the greatness, the vastness, the brilliance, and the excellence of Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like to offer a contrast of the bigness and vastness of Jesus to the enormity of man's sin. Maybe you can relate. It was the third Tuesday 
in July of 1997 at Roseville Covenant Church in Roseville, Minnesota. The board and church leaders gathered to debate. It was a special meeting, special session, to debate what to do about me. On one side, people were saying that I was caught in lies, that I was gone from the office a long time, I was unavailable, my preaching had flagged and my passion had lessened. On the other side, they would say, well, because of past performance, the church is still growing, Uh, let's give him a break. The accusations, the charges were volatile, violent disagreement, and they were arguing about me. Driving home from that meeting, I didn't want Sherry to be at that meeting, but driving home from that meeting, I asked the question, how did I get here? And then I flashed back two and a half years before that. The fall of 1994, uh, I was introduced by a member of our congregation after a fishing trip to one of Minnesota's many casinos. And I was hooked. That led to two and a half years of uh, deceit and a rapid descent into an addiction that I didn't even realize I had. And then three years later, the summer of 1997, our church chairman, a really good friend, still a good friend, Larry Olson, said, we want you and Sherry to go to Marble Retreat. It was a retreat for uh, pastors in crisis. And he said, let's see if we can sort this thing out. This thing to be sorted out was me. So we went to the Marble Retreat in Colorado and uh, a few days later, I confessed to my counselor and to Sherry my sin. I came back after Colorado. I stood before our congregation and asked for their forgiveness and resigned. I became under the care and discipline of the Evangelical Covenant Church and through my counseling with Jim Sundholm, uh, my true situation came into focus. And it was as follows. I recognized that I have an enormous capacity to sin and to be addicted. The second thing I realized was my fierce need to control my circumstances and my surroundings. And that came out of uh, the death death of our son three years earlier when I felt like I was completely out of control. And the third thing was my dependence on human approval and acceptance. I mean, after all, the other churches I had served, loved and accepted and affirmed me. And now I was in the very uncomfortable position of being deeply disliked and distrusted. And there was this roiling controversy all around me. So one afternoon as I was talking to my counselor Jim and I was talking about the greatness of my sin, the vastness of my transgression, he said, I've got an assignment for you, Dwayne, and it's this. I want you to study and read the book of Colossians. I said, well, why that particular book? He said, because no matter how great your sin is, Jesus is bigger. I had to rediscover the gospel. I had to rediscover the bigness and the vastness of Jesus and his grace. And I had to know, I had to know that Jesus was bigger 
than my sin, that his arm was not too long to reach, was long enough to reach me. And so this is what I discovered, and this is the journey that I am inviting you to join me on, to discover the wonder and the vastness and the wideness and the extravagance of Jesus and his, and his, and his gospel. And I discovered what you heard from Sherry, that because Jesus was strong, I was free to be weak. Because Jesus won for me, I was free to lose. Because Jesus was someone, I was free to be no one. Because Jesus was extraordinary, I was free to be ordinary. Because Jesus succeeded for me, I was free to fail. So brothers and sisters in Christ, those of you at Grace Community Church and all of you who are listening today, I want to invite you to understand and to experience the gospel in a new way, the bigness and the vastness and the wonder of Jesus Christ. And we're going to find that in a very extraordinary place. It's a small gospel that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, the book of Colossians. So I want to invite you to fully participate in these next eight weeks. Four chapters. Read every chapter every week. Four chapters a week. It's not too much to read. And do that for eight weeks. And you will experience this beautiful, symmetrical, God-given understanding of the greatness and the grandness of Jesus. So today, by way of introduction and overview, I would like to make four statements about the greatness of Jesus and, listen, the futility of making Jesus too small. If evangelicals have a problem, that's their problem. The futility of making Jesus too small. So here's the four statements we're going to look at today. The first is this, I want everything. Number two, I have nothing. Number three, you're going to relate to this, especially if you're raised in a Catholic church, I want to earn it. And number four, Jesus is enough. These are statements of the greatness of Jesus. We begin with, I want everything. So there's this beautiful story that you're all very familiar with in the book of Genesis. It's uh, the beginning of time and the beginning of man. And it's when um, God created this beautiful place. We call it Eden. And this beautiful place had everything imaginable that people could desire or want. A vast, glorious array of fruits and vegetables and trees, everything you could possibly want. It was in this fertile valley between the Mesopotamia and, and, and Mesopotamia between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Excuse me, I keep losing my... Sherry tapes this down for me, but either I messed it up or she did. We're going to go with me, okay? And uh, so uh, there's this fertile region there in Mesopotamia, and it's where all this beautiful garden was, the Garden of Eden. And so uh, it's there, and God says, it's all for you. But he said, I want to warn you, because he did give us a free will, right? I want to warn you, there's one tree that you shouldn't partake of. So listen to these three verses, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. The Lord God placed man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. 
But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you will surely die. For Adam and Eve, almost everything was not enough. Almost everything was not complete. They wanted everything. Everything God could provide and everything their eyes could see. They wanted everything. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon writes these words. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity, listen, set eternity in the hearts of men and women. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. We can't even begin to imagine what God has done and who he is and how great he is. But yet we want everything now. So there's this lack, this longing, this wanting of something that we don't have, that we desire. It's a God-shaped vacuum. You've heard that phrase that nothing else can fill. We know that there's something more, right? Sherry's been really on a spiritual journey the last few days, and she says, I know there's something more. I I know there's something more. Looking for that. This eternity is best described in the end of our Bibles. In Revelation 21.5, Jesus said, Behold, I am making all things new. I want this, and I want this now. I want this all things new right now, right? Especially after 2020. I want to be done with COVID. And I want to have everybody look at each other regardless of the color of their skin as equals, as God-ordained human beings. I want that, and I want it now. I want everything. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity uh, wrote these words. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Isn't that beautiful? So uh, a while back, um, uh, I don't know if it was, maybe it was in last year, we were talking about what we wanted, and Sherry said, what I want in the new year is I want all the people, now this is the difference between she and me, I want all the people that I've ever known and all the five churches that we've served, I want them all in one place, and I want to have meaningful, meaningful conversations with every one of them. I said, honey, what you want is heaven. You're not going to find that on earth. What you, and there's that something in us that we want something more, right? St. Augustine, in his amazing book, Confessions, wrote this. You made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. When are we going to understand that everything that we need is found in Jesus? Everything that we want, every longing in our soul is found in Jesus. There's something that this world cannot provide, a longing, a satisfaction, a solution to our emptiness and our restlessness. The restlessness, the restlessness of man says, I want more. It's not enough. I want everything. And the cry of God and the testimony of this little book called Colossians is that what your heart longs for, the everything you're looking for, is Jesus. A few years ago, I was um, a young woman in our church at Hope asked for a, a counseling session. So we met, 
and uh, she basically wanted to complain about her husband. Uh, some of you ladies know what that's like. And, um, and she said, here's, here's what I want my husband to do. They've only been married a few years. She said, I want my husband to be a spiritual giant. I want him to be a compassionate partner. I want him to show me unconditional love. I want him to be an incredible lover. I want him to magnificently provide for me and our family. And I want him to be completely unselfish. I said, Jesus is already taken. This poor sap, he didn't have a chance, you know. I mean, come on. I mean, we are looking for everything because we feel somehow if we will get everything from the world, we'll be satisfied. I want everything. That leads us to the second statement. I have nothing. Or more accurately, what I have come to depend upon, to rely on, to believe in that will give me life and satisfy my soul is nothing. When we uh, first started uh, Hope Covenant Church back in 2000, we started a Celebrate Recovery ministry. This came out of Saddleback, Saddleback and it was a, kind of a Christian version of AA, right? Uh, we, you all know that. And it was a wonderful program, and we had, it, uh, we had several people in our church that were part of it, and we reached out to the community and had a lot of people that were going to celebrate recovery. And I learned, because I was an addictive person that has recovered or was continuing to recover, I, I realized that um, I really am drawn to people that are addictive <laughs> because there's something real about them. There's something absolutely authentic about them, even those who are not Christ followers. And that's that they have absolute assurance that they can do nothing outside of God or their higher power. They know it in their bones that they have no ability to get over this addiction that they have without God. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is the real need that you are seeking to fill? Acceptance? Approval, various people that will add value to you, significance, purpose, direction. What is it that I'm missing? In fact, you need to ask yourself that question sometime today. What is it that I'm missing? I mean, we already have Jesus and all that he brings, but what else? Now, most of us, most of us, we don't want to replace Jesus. We just want to add to him. We just want to add something else that he doesn't quite give us or doesn't quite provide. C.S. Lewis in Outside of Mere Christianity, his absolute best book, Screwtape Letters. Uh, Screwtape is, uh, he's the persona of Satan. And he's talking to one of his minions, uh, his protege, Wormwood. Isn't that a great name, Wormwood? And uh, he, he's telling Wormwood about his strategy for derailing Christians, right? And here's what he said. To keep them in a state of mind I call Christianity and. That's how you derail Christians. Christianity and politics. Christianity and how much money am I going to make this year? Christianity and speaking in tongues. Christianity and doing the right thing. Christianity and. Screwtape gives examples. Now, his examples came from the late 1940s, right? 
pre, well, actually uh, during the war and post-World War II. And here were his examples. Uh, uh, Christianity and the new order. Christianity and the new psychology. We're still trying to figure that one out, right, aren't we? Christianity and faith healing. Chris, this is a great one. You're going to love this. Christianity and vegetarianism. Back in, back in that day, that was really a far-out weirdo, you know, that did that. Well, now that's pretty commonplace, right? Today, it's Christianity plus self-affirmation or coolness, which most of you have never had to worry about. Christianity and self-improvement. Christianity and environmentalism. Christianity and social justice, racial equality. Christianity and, and politics. Screwtape said adding anything to Jesus amounts to nothing. That's why he called it mere Christianity in his famous book. And us, Christianity and achievements, Christianity and our strengths, our reputation, our personal set of life rules or morality, Christianity and our purpose, Christianity and our goodness, all this becomes an idol. Christ plus anything is heresy. Now, that's a strong word, but I want you to hear it strong. Christ plus anything is heresy. Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. So what are you trusting in other than Jesus? So here's what the Bible says in Isaiah 41, 24, and you, some of you might want to cover your ears. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. Ouch! Come on, Isaiah. You know, back off a little bit, right? Isaiah says, I, idols are a delusion. They're not for profit. They're worthless. And Luke, in Acts chapter 14, kind of jumps on that bandwagon. He says, idols are worthless. Everyth everything... Anything we depend on to give us life or sustain us is an idol. And in the book of Colossians, it says over and over and over again, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. So there's this beautiful story that you're familiar with in Luke chapter 16. It's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Now the rich man, uh, there's no biblical name for him, but tradition has given him the name Dives. And that's a Latin word for a wealthy man. And here Dives lives in this amazing palace and he's very wealthy, he's very rich. And outside the doors of his palace, uh, there's this beggar. And it's, it's Lazarus. And not, not the Lazarus that Jesus raised for a dead, another guy. And uh, Lazarus there, he's got sores on his body. The dogs come and lick his sores. Sorry for that, it's not lunchtime quite. And it was just really an ugly situation. Well, Lazarus dies... And because his heart was turned towards God, the Bible says that the angels carried him off to paradise. Now, heaven doesn't exist yet, but there's paradise, right? And uh, being the presence of God. And these angels carried Lazarus off. And then, and then Dives died. He passed away. And he goes to another place, a place that we would call Sheol. Okay, hell doesn't exist yet, but Sheol, right? And, and between these two places, paradise and Sheol, there's this great chasm. And there's just vast area between. And, 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 La and Dives looks over this chasm and sees Lazarus in the bosom of who? who? Abraham. Abraham, right. 
And Abraham's there. He's cool. He's waiting. He's waiting for heaven someday, right? And, and they're having a good conversation. And Davies says, hey, Abraham, send Lazarus over here. He still wanted Lazarus to be a servant. That's what happens to wealthy people. Hey, send him over here so he can touch the water and touch on my tongue. In other words, that guy, he was a beggar. Now I'll elevate him to be my servant, right? No, no, no. And here's what it says. Son, remember in life you had everything. <laughs> Lazarus had nothing. And now he is comforted and you are in anguish. Stark contrast between an impoverished man, an impoverished beggar, and a man who had everything. I want everything, but Dives learned, as we all should know, that outside of Jesus, I have nothing. I have nothing. The third statement is this. I want to earn it. Now, all of us are kind of, have a tendency to be closet legalists. I recognize that. And we all have a list of things that we do to prop ourselves up and to tell us that we're doing okay in our Christian lives. But that's emptiness. And that emptiness that we have in us needs to be filled, not with idols, but the greatest threat of that is legalism or performanceism. We keep a list of religious rules, and every one of you have these in your heads, right? These religious rules. And I remember my grandparents uh, raised uh, Southern Baptists down in the South. My grandparents had this rule that somehow they believed that one of the commandments was that you're not supposed to cook on the Sabbath, you know, work, right, on the Sabbath. And so grandma wouldn't cook. And, and they got it confused anyway because when they said the Sabbath, they were thinking of Sunday, but actually it was Saturday. And, but Grandma wouldn't cook anything. If, on Sunday, if you visited her, she just put out cold food from yesterday, but she would not cook on Sunday. We all have these weird things, right? We keep a list of religious rules. Uh, now, there's nothing wrong with morality. Don't get me wrong. But there's everything wrong with moralism because moralism is a thing in itself, it's kind of a goal. It's a, something we want to achieve. Morality, we should all be moral. But the ability to do good, to save ourselves, is an illusion of satisfying that emptiness by good works. Our rules become, please hear this well, a substitute savior. Jesus railed against those who thought rules were enough, the Pharisees. He called them whitewashed tombs. And then for those of you who are really good, and you were raised good, you weren't the prodigal son. You were the good guy, right? You were the son who stayed home. You were the one who did everything right. Well, listen to this. On Christmas Eve, I told you the story of the prodigal son. Listen to the end of that story in Luke 15, verses 29 and 30. But he replied. This is the older son, the older son, the good boy. But he replied, all these years, I've slaved for you, talking to his dad, and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. 
Yet when this son of yours, he didn't even call him his brother, you could, you could hear what he said, this son of something, right? This son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes. You celebrate by killing the fattened calf? Come on, dad. I'm the good kid. I'm the one that followed all the rules. I stayed home and took care of the farm. That is a really odd way of dealing with this story, isn't it? I mean, this is absolutely crazy. This guy's saying, what about me? You owe me. And each one of you have in this, in your psyche, a little bit of this. If I behave, God will reward me, right? I mean, confess it. If I behave, if I do the right thing, somehow, some way, God will bless it. It's kind of a modern day legalism, but you can't earn grace. It's just too big. So here's a lesson on how to become a legalist. Number one, make rules outside the Bible. That's really important that you get that one. Number two, push yourselves, yourself to try and keep your rules. Number three, castigate yourself when you don't keep your rules. Oh, some of you are very good at that. Number four, become proud when you keep your rules. Number five, appoint yourself as judge over other people. Evangelicals, that's been what we've accused, we've been accused of that by the world, right? By about five and a half billion people on the planet, they've accused us of that. Appoint yourself as judge over other people. Number six, get angry with people who break your rules or have different rules. And the last one is just beat the losers. In other words, if you fail, throw them under the bus. People outside the church believe this of us. What are you looking to instead of Jesus for meaning in life, for purpose, for significance, for security, for direction, for acceptance and approval? The message of Colossians is that no matter how hard you try, no matter how good you are, it doesn't begin to measure up to the bigness, the greatness, the vastness of knowing Jesus. How about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Not good enough. Well, how about Moses? No. How about the angels? Paul said, absolutely not. Jesus is far greater, far vaster, far more wonderful than all of these put together. And then the last statement is this. Jesus is enough. When Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians around 60 AD, by the way, there's large sections of Colossians in Ephesians. Uh, Paul, when he was writing to these two churches, there was whole sections that were verbatim that were so important he wanted both of these churches to know and he so obviously wants us to know it. So in about 60 AD, Colossae was a trade center with lots of travelers coming and going. It was a very pluralistic society. Uh, competing ideas and philosophies and worldviews were vying for recognition and supremacy. That sound familiar in our world today? Into that mix, the church is planted. The church at Colossae. Paul plants the church. Concepts are pulling at each other, false teachers, Gnosticisms there. Jesus certainly isn't enough. Jesus is okay, but Jesus plus Judaism, that's the real answer. Or Jesus plus really having a big mind, a smart mind, that's Gnosticism. Paul was saying, no, 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 no. Christ is bigger. Christ is greater. Christ is more sufficient, more sweeping, more immense, more soaring beyond your understanding. Our sin Yes, our sin is huge. Our sin is enormous. 
but Jesus is bigger. In the normal Christian life, written by Watchman Nee in the 1950s, he was a Chinese theologian, and he says one of the most profound statements that have really controlled my understanding of grace. He said it this way, how dare you presume that your sin is greater than Jesus? How dare you have the idea, the audacity to think that something you have done is not redeemable by God? And so many evangelicals sit in that pity pot of I did this when I was 12 years old. I was unfaithful when I was 40. I did this and God will never forgive me. How great is your sin? It's so great. But Jesus is so much greater, so much bigger. Now, there's nothing small about the gospel or Jesus. Taste the greatness of his love. Lose the taste for false idols. This study is about seeing Jesus bigger. It's not about seeing your sin as less than, because your sin is not less than. Your sin is really big, but it's seeing Jesus about being bigger. The commentarian Matthew Henry said it this way, the joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks. Put our mouths out of the taste for those pleasures. How big is your God? How big is Jesus? Is he bigger than your sins? Is he bigger than your desires, your longings? Is he big enough for you? Is he sufficient? I want to invite you as I close to, if you would just close your eyes. And with your eyes closed, I would like you to hear these beautiful six verses from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of, the, of Christ's blood on the cross. Father, may these words just reverberate in our hearts. Paul proclaims that God's will is to reconcile to himself all things and to reconcile every person in this room 
and to reconcile every personing, person listening to this live stream, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Father, I just want to thank you for the enormous privilege we have of being your children. And Lord, there's something remarkable about um, when we understand how big Jesus is. It doesn't make us smaller. <laughs> really, it makes us bigger. It doesn't mean that our sin is insignificant. It means our sin is covered. And so, Father, as we begin this series in Colossians, I just want to invite every listener into this amazing book. This amazing book that tells us how vast is the love of God. How great is the grace of our Father. How supreme over all things is Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that these words that you have written so long ago would be written on our hearts. Thank you, Father, for the greatness of your Son, our Savior Jesus. Amen.